Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. I'm here to talk about a very big news story that happened this week. Verve Therapeutics announced its arrival to the world. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. And it got a ton of ink in Stat, MIT Tech Review, a host of other places. And the company arrived promising to, quote-unquote, protect the world from heart disease. It was a big news story considering that, well, I mean, the company hasn't done anything yet, and in fact, there's, there's not even a product yet. There's a team, and there's financing, and there's perhaps the most ambitious corporate motto I've ever seen. But there are several reasons why this announcement made such a big splash. One, the new CEO is Sekar Kathirison. If you pay attention at all to cardiology, to genetics, just to the news, and you haven't been living under a rock since last August, you've been hearing a lot about Sek, mainly in conjunction with his group's work on polygenic risk scores. His group at the Broad has produced polygenic risk scores for a number of conditions. Last month, obesity was the most recent one, and Sake has been a tireless cheerleader on any number of platforms, including here on The Beagle Has Landed and very often on Twitter, for the utility of PRSs in clinical care. It really seemed that his heart was in it, excuse the cardiology pun, so it was somewhat of a surprise to see him step away from academia altogether to take the helm of this new venture. So, Rockstar CEO, that's number one. Number two, Verve announced partnerships with Beam Therapeutics, uh, which specializes in base editing, and Verily, the Google Alphabet whatever company, and licensing deals with the Broad and funding from the Google Venture Capital people. So right away it made it clear that they were coming to play with the cool kids. And finally, most interestingly to me, the mission. Verve says they're going to develop gene therapies to reduce heart disease. Gene therapy is something we associate with rare monogenic disease. And here's a company saying they think they can use it like statins to combat the most common cause of death worldwide. So that raises about 100 questions how do we do it? Who, how do we pay for it? Who would be a candidate? And I'm so pleased that one of the co-founders of Verve, Kiran Musunuru, agreed to come on the podcast today and try and answer some of them for us. Kiran is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine, MD, PhD, MPH, and all-around great guy who is now the chief medical officer of Verve Therapeutics. So, Kiran, congratulations on that. Thanks very much, Lauren. It's a real pleasure to be back on The Beagle Has Landed. Yeah, so nice to have you here. So I first heard Kieran talk about some work he's doing back in December. And actually, that work was the first thing I thought of when I saw this announcement about Verb. So I was 0% surprised to hear you were involved. Because um, clinically, there's a very big difference between treating someone who is sick um, and in the case of gene editing, perhaps fixing something that is broken, and prevention. And your work, for me, at the time I heard about it, was absolutely novel because it steps into that prevention space, like, you know, exercise or eat your vegetables and, you know, now edit your genes. <laughs> so that's a very <laughs> radical idea. So for listeners, will you start with an ex- 
explanation of PCSK9 and what happens when you knock it out and what you've been doing, the work you've been doing so far. Certainly, certainly. So first, the disclaimer, I'm actually the chief scientific advisor for for therapeutics. So I'm still firmly ensconced in academia, uh, in my position at University of Pennsylvania, advising the company at this time. Um, But as you'll appreciate as I get through the the background, uh, much of what Verb will be doing is spun out of the research I've been doing in my own laboratory uh, for the last six years. And so to take on your first question about the gene PCSK9, so this is a gene that was discovered in 2003. It was actually discovered by virtue of patients with a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia, sky-high cholesterol levels caused by rare mutations. In these particular families, the gene involved was found to be this novel gene, now known as PCSK9, with specific mutations that tracked through these families, and any individual in those families who had that particular mutation had the very high cholesterol levels. And this isn't just moderately high cholesterol for which you would take a statin drug. This is actually extremely high cholesterol levels. To give you a sense, it can be in excess of 1,000 milligrams per deciliter, and you know the average in cholesterol, LDL cholesterol level, the bad cholesterol, the average level in the uh, United States is on the order of 110 or thereabouts, 110 milligrams per deciliter. So if you're now talking about LDL cholesterol levels way higher, even an order of magnitude higher, then you get a sense of how serious this is. And those patients, even with current therapies, get heart attacks relatively early in life, as early as their 30s and 20s and are not treated. Um, they could potentially even get heart attacks as early as uh, childhood or adolescence. So a very serious disease. So in any case, PCSK9 was found to be involved in this particular disease. There are a few other genes that are involved as well. But what was intriguing about PCSK9, what emerged in just the next year or two, is that the particular mutations in this gene that were causing this disorder, these sky-high cholesterol levels, were actually gain-of-function mutations. So what I mean by that is mutations that cause the gene product, the protein, to work much better than it ordinarily does. So that's actually quite unusual. Usually we think about mutations as breaking genes or turning them off. But in this case, it was actually turning up gene activity. Now, this quickly led to the recognition that if there are mutations out there that turn up its activity and increase cholesterol levels, there might well be mutations that turn down the activity or even turn it off altogether out there in the population. After all, it's much easier to break something than it is to make it work much better than it ordinarily does. And in fact, work out of UT Southwestern and other institutions uh, fairly rapidly over the next couple of years, um, we're now talking 2005, 2006, demonstrated that there are in fact loss of function mutations. These are mutations that turn off gene activity at a pretty high frequency in the population. We're talking about 3% of people actually have one of these mutations. And in studying these individuals with these loss of function mutations, where one copy of the two copies of PCSK9 that are in every cell is turned off or turned down, basically lacking half of the activity of the protein, these individuals not only have substantially lower cholesterol levels, they have far lower risk of coronary heart disease. Uh, absolutely remarkable finding. And then the flip side is that these individuals actually seem to have no serious adverse consequences from having these mutations. And in fact, there are individuals who have been identified who have the gene totally turned off, 
and they're fine. They're healthy. They live to a ripe old age. That flips me out. That part yeah. flips me out. It's like, why do we? Why do any of us have this in that case? There doesn't don't you think there has to be something else there? Yeah, well, this gene has been around for millions and millions of years, so it's not just found in humans, but really all the way down the, the phylogenetic lineage. So it evolved in a very different situation than you know modern twenty first century um, you know humanity. Uh, it's widely found across species, and you know this is speculation. But what what people like myself think is that the gene is important because it has a role in regulation versus counter-regulation. So cholesterol is a very important molecule. Now, we think of it as a bad thing, and that's because of the linked heart disease, but it's a vital molecule. We would not be able to survive without cholesterol. It's an important component of our cells that keeps them intact. It's the precursor for hormones like testosterone and estrogen that, that we need, obviously. Um, it plays a variety of other roles, and so you need cholesterol. But you don't want too much. You don't want too little. You know, it's kind of the Goldilocks issue. And so it's not surprising that there are genes whose role is to push down cholesterol levels if they get too high. And then there are genes that push it up if you're not taking off enough cholesterol in your diet, for example. Um, you know, think of it as a feast and famine situation that, you know, we're talking tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago where it, there was no guarantee you'd make enough or get enough cholesterol in the diet and that you'd be able to make so maybe So maybe when, you know, our ancestors were living on berries and weeds is what you're saying. Maybe yeah. this was a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it was a good thing, right? You know, it, it's, it's very rare that, you know, turning something all the way off or turning something all the way up is going to be good. Usually you're looking for the happy medium. And it's not surprising that genes evolve that push and pull to make sure you have the right balance. Now, we have this gene. It's, it's a legacy of millions of years of evolution. But now we're in an era... 21st century, uh, where, you know, we're not really in a feast and famine situation anymore. If anything, you know, we're, we're really off to one extreme where we're, there's overnutrition. Uh, very few people, I would say, are, uh, at least in the United States and other developed countries, very few people are lacking for cholesterol in their diet. If anything, it's, it's far in the other direction. Yeah. yeah. Feast or famine in a lot of things, but not as it turns out cholesterol. Yeah. So in any case, the fact that these specific mutations in PCSK9, these loss of function mutations that turn it down, they show pretty frequently in the population on the order of 3%. They're well tolerated. They seem to be safe. They don't seem to cause any problems for the people who have them. Many of our listeners right now may have them without even realizing it. Um, it just translates into lower cholesterol levels. But more to the point, it leads to a dramatic reduction in coronary heart disease risk. The, the original study in 2006 at UT Southwestern uh, showed up to a 90% reduction in the odds of having coronary heart disease if you were a carrier of one of these mutations. So that is a dramatic result. And this energized many companies to start developing therapeutics that target this gene or target the protein product of this gene. There are two on the market right now to monoclonal antibodies against the PCSK9 protein. One nice feature of PCSK9 from a therapeutic perspective is that it is made in the liver, not exclusively, but largely in the liver, in the hepatocytes in the liver, and secreted into the bloodstream. So the protein is circulating around in the bloodstream, and an antibody injected into the bloodstream can bind it and essentially uh, neutralize it. Hmm. 
And so now we have two medications of this type that are on the market that have been shown in clinical trials to reduce cardiovascular events. So it all works. It's a really what, a beautiful demonstration of what we think of as a genetic research cycle. Gene discovered mm-hmm. in 2003, characterized over the next few years, drugs approved and on the market available to patients in 2015. That is a remarkable turnaround. It sure is. And it's not something we've seen all that often, to be honest. Uh, I mean, that, that last piece of... yeah. Uh, finding genes, yes, understanding them, yes, being able to do something about it, pretty much no. So it's a, it's a success story. So you're looking at a permanent way to turn it, turn it off. Yeah, exactly. But before I get to that part of the story, I'd point out that PCSK9 is not unique. Um, there are other PCSK9s out there. And so this is where the story of underlying verb, if you will, starts. It starts decades ago, really. Mm-hmm. So there are three scientific co-founders, and they've played um, critical and complementary roles um, that have led to the formation and launch of Verve. So the first is someone you've already mentioned, Say Catharacin, uh, who happens to have been my postdoctoral mentor. I was his first postdoc uh, about a decade ago. Um, but even before that, um, he was working intensively on the same exact question. Are there genetic variants in the population that protect against heart disease. Uh, he was also looking at the flip side, are there genes that cause heart disease? But this very interesting angle of finding these protective mutations, uh, finding people who have won the genetic lottery, or put another way, these people who are genetic superheroes um, by virtue of having these good mutations. He's been looking for those types of people for more than 15 years now. Um, while I was a postdoctoral fellow with him, as I said, about a decade ago, we happened upon a second gene, a lot like PCSK9, a gene called angiopoietin-like 3, or ANGPTL3, which is very similar in the sense that there are naturally occurring loss-of-function mutations in the general population. They're less frequent than with PCSK9. They're more on the order of about 1 in 300 people. But the people who have uh, one of these mutations have lower LDL cholesterol levels, lower triglycerides, and lower risk of coronary disease. And there's even some evidence showing better um, insulin tolerance and our glucose tolerance and insulin sensitivity. So there may be protection against diabetes as well. So it'd really be what we think of as a quadruple whammy with this single gene. So in some ways, it's almost better than PCSK9. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that emerged uh, around 10 years ago. And then since then, there have been five or six other genes Uh, in a similar vein, where these loss-of-function mutations or mutations in general uh, modify cholesterol levels and or triglyceride levels, um, as well as protect against heart disease. So there's actually a stable of these mutations out there that serve as potential targets. So so let's, before we get back to Verve, I hear a little bit more about when you talk about targets, about the work you've been doing, looking at how we could permanently knock out PCSK9 and these other targets, theoretically. Absolutely, absolutely. So you've heard me talk about these monoclonal antibodies that target PCSK9. They work. Um, They are injections because you need to get the monoclonal antibody um, into the body, so they're subcutaneous injections. And you have to take them every couple of weeks, in some cases a little less frequently. Um, But they're limited in their their duration of effect uh, to to a few weeks. And that means you've got to take an injection every few weeks for the rest of your life if you want the full protective effect because this is a chronic disease, cardiovascular disease that we're talking about. And so what if you could instead 
give a single therapy that would reproduce the effects of those naturally occurring mutations, but in a permanent way. Uh, and so this is where gene editing comes into the picture. And so this is something I've been working on, again, for about a decade. And again, going back to when I was a postdoctoral fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital working with, say, Catheracin, uh, the third co-founder, scientific co-founder of Irv, came into the picture, at least into my life, um, and that's Keith Jung. And so he is an investigator also at Massachusetts General Hospital who's been working in the gene editing field for decades. So long before CRISPR was on the scene, he was working on zinc finger nucleases and a bit later tau effector nucleases or talons. And then more recently, CRISPR uh, based um, RNA uh, uh, enzymes, if you will. And what's, uh, what's remarkable is how these various threads have come together. So I first interacted, first met Keith uh, back when I was a postdoctoral fellow and became interested in using gene editing tools because I wanted to understand the effects of these mutations we were finding, both good mutations and bad mutations, in model systems. So cell-based systems, uh, potentially even animal models like mouse models. And, and for me, gene editing was really exciting because it gave a way to rapidly introduce one of these variants into one of these model systems and so then this, use that model system to, to this, read out. This, if I, I mean, you're, yeah, this, so this would have been also zinc finger nucleases, talons, and so on when you were yeah, first so, introduced. Yeah, so I, to- I started by, you know, connecting with Keith, and he was, he was very generous in uh, introducing me to the zinc finger nuclease technology and, and starting to work with it. Um, it was difficult to use, uh, no getting around with it, you know, it was, it was, it was yeah. So and then, and then 2012 happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I was working with zinc finger <laughs> nucleases, then with talons and then 2012 and more specifically January, 2013 is, is when, you know, the whole, the whole world changed. And that's when CRISPR first came onto the scene. Um, that's not to say that CRISPR came, you know, out of nothingness, there was actually substantial work going back a couple of decades. Oh, Kieran, I thought you were going to credit the bacteria. <laughs> no, <laughs> the bacteria so have been yeah. doing it for millennia, so well, let's, let's yeah, give well, them a hat-tip yeah, well, bacteria. For, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's a naturally occurring immune system in bacteria, and of course it's been there for, <laughs> for <laughs> you know, who knows how long, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. Right, of so, so 2012, yeah. 2013, we first start hearing about this new thing, and the, the, it, it, it makes the leap into mammalian cells. Exactly. So suddenly, so was, it's a tool. It's a tool for someone like you. I don't think there's anyone in the audience that hasn't missed that newsflash, right? <laughs> Cheaper, more efficient, better. Um, so suddenly, you are interested in this subject, and you have much better tools at hand. Yeah, exactly. Although I should note that in, we didn't actually know it was a better tool initially. So January 2013, those papers came out. By this point, I had an independent lab of my own. I I moved on from my postdoctoral lab, uh, from, say, Catherine's lab, and was starting to explore some of these questions uh, of my own. And when CRISPR came to everyone's attention, or at least within the gene editing field, uh, the scientists' attention, in January 2013, there were some question marks. It, It looked like it was working in mammalian cells, but it was an open question whether it actually worked better or even similarly to previous gene editing tools like zinc finger nucleases, like talons. I had invested a lot of time in talons. It got them working really well. So I actually was not necessarily looking or hoping for a new gene editing tool. <laughs> um, and so, but there it was. And then there was this unanswered question, well, how well does it really work in practice? And because I had spent so much time working on talons, we had targeted 
you know, more than a dozen genes and different cell lines. We were very experienced with it. <laughs> I know. And, it's like, well, listen, I used to have a lot of VHS tapes, you know? <laughs> there you go. There you go. And so, so the question that immediately consumed my attention was, you know, how does this new tool, this CRISPR-Cas9 tool, how does it match up with talons? You know, it, it could be that it works as well. It could be that in some cases it works worse, in some cases it works better. And then, you know, it's kind of, you know, up to you which one you want to use. Um, and so I started doing head-to-head comparisons. I quickly got the reagents from George Church, who was the people who had reported CRISPR-Cas9 that January, mm-hmm. uh, and within weeks had it up and running in my laboratory and doing those head-to-head, apples-to-apples comparisons. And what blew me away was that the worst CRISPR targeting in terms of efficiency, the worst CRISPR targeting across the board, all the different genes that we were targeting, so by this time we had tested it out on eight or nine genes, the worst CRISPR targeting was way better than the best talent targeting. Wow. And that just blew me. And you me figured, away. you found that out in, in, in a period of weeks or, or months, literally right? Weeks, literally weeks. You and must fact, have been just stunned. I was stunned. I remember the, the moment very clearly, seeing the gel and seeing how many cells were altered, just how efficient it was. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before because it worked better than than the best talent I'd ever worked with. Even the worst CRISPR was better than the best right. talent. That's a great story. I'm really glad you told it. Now tell about, now tell about PCSA9. <laughs> well, and, and so, yeah, just, just a little coded to that. So that, you know, I, I really feel that that was an important, you know, and it's not that, I, you know, anything I did was that distinctive. You know, others would have quickly figured it out. But that ended up being key because it told us that CRISPR was not just another genome editing tool. It was something new. And it was going to entirely transform the landscape. And, you know, at this time, I was mostly working in cells in a dish. I was working mostly actually with stem cells because I was using stem cells to do the disease modeling for human diseases. Um, But, you know, naturally, very quickly occurred to me, wow, it works so well in cells in a dish. Is it possible that it works really well in living animals and potentially, you know, living human beings? Now, that's an open question, right? You never really know the answer until you've tested it. And so in fairly short order, in an order of months, we started asking the question, you know, will this work if you put it into the body of, of a mouse model, since that's one of our more commonly used model animals? Um, and again, it, it may not have worked. And I really didn't know what to expect. Yeah, it looks great in cells in a dish, but there were certain tricks we were using to, you know, make it work well in a dish, and et cetera, et cetera. If we actually just administer it to an animal, we'll get to where we want to go. And then in the liver... Um, will it work well? And the reason that I was particularly interested in the liver ties back to PCSK9, which is expressed in the liver and right. uh, secreted from the liver in the bloodstream. That other gene I mentioned, ANGPTL3, is also exclusively produced in the liver um, and then inject, uh, rather um, secreted into the bloodstream where the protein has its action. And a lot of these, the set of genes I mentioned that um, when turned off are protect against disease, an awful lot of them uh, act in the liver, at least initially. And that reflects the fact that cholesterol and triglycerides, their metabolism is really controlled, is really driven by the liver. And so we quickly, uh, you know, set up to do the experiment. If we deliver CRISPR-Cas9 into the liver using a viral vector, will it work? We have no idea. In fact, you know, I was, I was pessimistic um, that, you know, maybe we'll see a little bit of activity, maybe we'll see nothing. What I didn't expect to see from the first experiment is that it worked like gangbusters. We got it in, the virus got CRISPR-Cas9 into most, if not all, of the cells in the liver. And what was amazing is that it knocked out almost all copies of the gene in the mouse liver. It 
totally turned off the production of PCSK9. There was a more than 90% reduction in the amount of PCSK9 protein in the blood, and that translated into 35 to 40% reduction in the total cholesterol levels in these mice. So I have amazing. to ask you, so here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the, 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 the most important question. Can we as a society afford to eliminate heart disease in mice? <laughs> well, you know, mice actually don't get heart attacks. That's the interesting <laughs> thing about the irony. Right? Their, their biology is somewhat different from ours, and they actually don't make that much cholesterol, and they're not prone to coronary heart disease the same way that we are. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so, so in that case, <laughs> and in that case, let me reword my question slightly. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, uh, it works in mice. Yeah. Obviously, all the caveats that you've mentioned before, mm-hmm. CRISPR works in cell lines. Was it going to work in an animal model? It works. Uh, this works in an animal model. Is it going to work in people? We don't know that final step, right? Like you never know until you, you test it out. And I know yeah. that work well, hasn't we, been done yet. But well, it's incredibly we do promising. And we, we do and we don't. So let me let me tell you the next step, which is yeah, we want to know if it works in humans. It's great that it works in mice, but many drugs work really great in mice, and then don't end up working in human beings. So that was very much on our minds. So and the next thing we did, once we saw it was working so well in mice, is ask the question, how do we know this is going to work well in the human liver? And obviously, you can't immediately go and start testing it out in human beings, right? That's <laughs> never going to fly, right? Flagrantly unethical. Um, and so our compromise was to use this unusual animal model, which we call liver-humanized mice, where you take a mouse and you controllably eliminate its own liver cells and simultaneously transplant in primary human liver cells taken from actual human beings and put them into the mice. And, you know, it, it, it sounds miraculous, but it actually works. These human liver cells will actually go into the liver of the mice, um, settle in there, and then repopulate the liver as the mouse's own liver cells are clearing out. That's amazing. And so you, so yeah, so you have mice that are walking around with these human-derived livers, yeah. and we and we realized that this was a way to test whether it would work in the human being. We we tuned CRISPR-Cas9 so it would target the human PCSK9 gene in human hepatocytes on the background of the human genome, and once again, it worked like gangbusters. Um, so I'm absolutely convinced if we can get CRISPR-Cas9 into the human liver in a person in a patient. It will work. There's no question about that. So, so I, this is so exciting. Let me just, um, I'm just going to have you go through one more bit of the science right here because I think it's sure. very interesting, which is that this is base editing, right? Well, there are different flavors, right? So there's standard gene editing where you make a full break in the genome at the location that you desire. So in this case, in this example, it would be PCSK9. So you've actually made a double strand break. And then the cell tries to repair it. Usually it works out okay, but every so often it doesn't get it quite right. I think of it like trying to tear the page of a book. Think of a gene as a paragraph on a page of a book, and the book is your genome. And now you've made a tear in the page right through a paragraph. And then, you know, if you want to fix it, you're going to try to tape it up. And usually you can tape it up so that that paragraph is still interpretable. It's still readable. It still has the same meaning. But if the tear was really rough, you know, maybe it doesn't quite match up when you put the ends together. Some of the letters get garbled, some of the words get garbled, and you end up with a broken gene to, you know, to take this analogy to perhaps an unreasonable extreme. (laughs) Um, But that's basically what's happening. You're breaking the gene and then the cell tries to repair. It doesn't get it quite right. And now you have a broken gene. 
that's standard gene editing. And that's crude. You don't have much control over what's going on, but it works. If you're just trying to break the gene, it works really well. If you're trying to make precise changes in the gene, change one base, one letter into another letter, standard gene editing is not really going to do the job for you. It just is not efficient enough. Base editing is a newer iteration of gene editing, a newer flavor, if you will, where you're not actually making a full double-strand break in the genome. Instead, you're using CRISPR-Cas9 or another CRISPR-based system as a GPS module to get you where you want to go in the genome. That part is the same. But now, instead of making this full break in the genome, you actually have attached an enzyme that will convert a specific base into another base. And so it actually is a way to efficiently change one letter into another at exactly the place you want. So you can so put it's in more precise and yes. neater, neater. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's, less, that's prone to, less prone to random error. Exactly. Um, so this is something you're able to test it in these humanized mouse letters and you're able to do, one of the ways you're able to do it is by this base editing, so it's this neater process. Yep. This is one of the first examples I had seen of base editing's power, and uh, it's not really relevant to the story so much here, but it, it, I just wanted to make sure we got that part told, because I thought it was uh, fascinating and also super exciting. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it's not part of the story, because if we're talking about verve therapeutics, uh, you know, it's another approach. It's a very viable approach. You know, you could use standard gene editing. You could use base editing. They're both viable approaches. They each have their advantages and their disadvantages. So let's, so I, let's talk about Verve Therapeutics. So sure. for, for Verve, um, in the publicity rush that happened around the announcement last week, Sake was talking about the first target is what you mentioned before, FH, um, a monogenic disease, different genes involved, but still monogenic disease. And, and um, not so different in that way from traditional gene therapy targets. Um, different in a sense because you would be doing it preventatively, but we know that people with FH, even if they're walking around healthy, we know they're, they're sick. Such a high percentage of them get early heart attacks. Exactly. Um, that's a target that looks something like traditional gene therapy targets, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody, right. somebody, uh, rare disease, uh, known course of events, understood path, you know, uh, definitely pathogenic, and sort of the understand the natural history of the disease and so on. Um, but anyone who's listened to Sake talk about PRS for uh, coronary artery disease knows that monogenic mutations yeah. <laughs> only account for two percent of early heart attacks. That is something exactly. I have heard a lot of times. So yes. you are not quote-unquote, protecting the world from heart disease by targeting only people with FH, right? That's right. So the idea here is, is it anybody is a candidate? Is it people with high cholesterol for any reason? Who do you envision as your candidates? How do we identify who's appropriate? And can we do this at that sort of enormous scale? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question that gets right to the heart of it, Laura. Not to not to, to make an unfortunate pun. Um, and so, Verve has developed a stepwise approach to to its clinical development program. And so, exactly as you mentioned, you have those FH patients, and not just FH, but a specific form of FH called homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. These are the most severely affected patients. These are the ones who can have LDL cholesterol levels in excess of 1,000 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, they're very seriously affected. 
and current therapy is for them it works but it's it's still fairly inadequate it gets ldl cholesterol levels down but not nearly as far down uh, to reach a normal range and in fact in order to to make any headway uh, these patients actually need to undergo a procedure called ldl apheresis which you can kind of think of like dialysis the idea is you're hooked up to a machine every week they're hooked up for several hours and then the machine is circulating your blood and basically right. cleaning the cholesterol out of your blood. So this is and a so, dramatic, exactly. life-altering, burdensome care. And yes. that's, that's, yeah, okay. So that's obviously where the kind of situation where you want to start, where there's great unmet need. And now you have the potential to give a single shot that will target, turn off one of these genes and permanently reduce their cholesterol levels. Would it reduce it all the way down to a normal range on its own? Maybe not. Uh, but there's nothing to say that you couldn't permanently reduce the cholesterol levels with a gene editing therapy and then also supplement that with traditional medications like statins and, and other medications that are available. Mm -hmm. So it's a way to, to make it so that these patients don't need to be undergoing this apheresis every week for their entire lives. Well, right? so these are these are interesting questions also of cost-benefit analysis, which is going to be a very important part of the question of whether or not something like this can succeed. Um, sure. is, it, is it a very expensive process that adds another layer to care? They're still on satins and so on. I mean, so if you have someone who's on this apheresis uh, therapy, that's both rare and expensive. Yeah. Um, so depending on... You know, I'm not going to ask you about prices, but we know that because it's so early in the process that even I, the queen of asking about cost all the time, uh, thinks it's a bit early to ask you. But, but I will mention that the only, you know, the, the first traditional gene therapy that we have cost $850,000 per patient. Um, they're talking about introducing uh, gene therapy for SMA, and people are batting around numbers like $2 million per patient. Um, incredible costs. Um, so the great thing about this, before we even get to the other targets, but people with FH, the great thing about this is they're able to help many more people. But the terrifying thing about this is also we're able to help many more people. So how do we afford this yeah. for one in 200 people? Sure, sure, exactly. So again, this is a stepwise approach. You're going to start with those most severely affected patients where uh, there's such great unmet need and such a, a large burden of healthcare costs. And then, you know, that's your initial foray into this area. And then I think once you've established efficacy and safety in those patients, then you kind of take the next step outwards. And one potential step that I think about a lot is the patient who has suffered a heart attack or maybe suffered multiple heart attacks. And you're really trying to prevent that next heart attack that might either kill them or put them into advanced heart failure, uh, which is a terrible disease that actually is as bad, if not worse, in its prognosis than cancer. It's sort of the equivalent of cancer in, in the cardiology world, advanced heart failure. Um, and so you want to prevent that next heart attack from happening. So let me tell you how the situation is now. A patient comes into the emergency room with a heart attack. They undergo procedures. They have balloons, they have stents in their coronary arteries to open up the blocked artery um, and to keep it open. They're saved from the heart attack. That's all well and good. And we've been very successful at doing that. It's a big part of the reason, not the only reason, but a big part of the reason why there's been a dramatic reduction 
in cardiovascular deaths uh, over the past five or six decades. But let me point this out. Those mechanical manipulations are not enough. We know that traditional things like lowering cholesterol levels also have a part to play. So it is routine practice. In fact, it is standard of care. Patient comes into the hospital with a heart attack. You do not let them leave the hospital without a prescription for a high dose of a statin because we know that high-intensity statin therapy will protect them from having that next event. Now, here is the problem. A medication, regardless of what it is, but if we're talking about statins, medications only work if patients take them. And the data suggests, at least in the United States, suggests that a third to a half of patients who are in this situation where they've had a heart attack and are given a prescription for statin therapy, a third to a half of those patients by a year later are no longer taking that statin, or at least not taking it regularly. And as with many aspects of our healthcare system, there are inequities inherent in the situation. So, you know, it's unfortunate, perhaps not surprising that women have lower adherence than men and African-Americans and Hispanic Americans compared to white Americans have lower adherence. Those are just the numbers. And there are a variety of reasons why that might be, why patients might choose not to continue to take statins or might not be able to take statins. You know, these drugs are not entirely cost-free. They still cost some amount of money. You need to keep getting prescriptions, which needs, you need to be within uh, continual contact uh, with a healthcare provider, you need to be hooked into the healthcare system. If you can't get that next prescription for the next three months of uh, therapy, then you're not going to be able to receive your medications. You might not be able to afford the copay. Alternatively, you may be able to afford it, but you may not want to take the medication. You may have something you think might be a side effect, and we've heard a lot about you know potential side effects of statins and how they might be overblown and how um, certain people have seized upon those to really argue against the utility of statin therapy, um, and I won't dive into that issue here, but if you're having some side effects and it's several months later and you don't really feel bad at all, you feel good, you don't really remember what it was like to be in the, you know, in the throes of that heart attack when you were probably very scared and worried you were going to die, right? Several months have passed, you don't feel like that anymore, you know, maybe you feel fine, maybe you're having some muscle aches and you think it might be due to the statin, you just may not take the statin anymore. Oh, right? I know this is true. I know this is true, but it's like, what a screwed up world where there are reasons to do this, but what a screwed up world where the reason to do gene therapy is that we don't have a good enough healthcare system with continuity of care to get people to take their medication. (laughs) Like, it's just... Well, I I take your point, but let me... me Flip it around a little bit. We can't spend $1,000, you know... Yeah. Helping people um, with copays and regular doctor's visits with a physician's assistant to sort of he hold their hand a little bit. So we're going to give them like a half a million dollars. And I could see it happening. It is like <laughs> it sounds very American, but but it's crazy. No, I take your point. So let me let me switch the context slightly and maybe put it into context. You know, we actually use medications or treatments, more properly speaking, to give lifelong protection against diseases all the time. They're called vaccinations. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're not talking about spending lots and lots of money on these vaccinations. These vaccinations are offered 
given, ideally, to the entire population. And so there are economies of scale that come into play. If you're just making one particular tailored therapy for one patient, of course, it's going to be very expensive. Mm -hmm. If you have something like a vaccination that's being given to millions of people, then the economies of scale work in your favor. And per person, it becomes relatively Absolutely. inexpensive. Absolutely. So let me ask you that question. Yeah. Do you see the work, you're, the work that you're doing, do you see economies of scale working in that case? Because one of the arguments against, um, uh, not against gene therapy, but one of the complications of gene therapy is it's effectively personalized. So in many cases, it's very hard, no matter how, you, no matter how many times you use it, to bring the cost down. So here, sure. do you see this as something where if you're treating more people, you can uh, bring the cost down appreciably? I think absolutely. And, you know, part of it will be the economies of scale and part of it will be over the coming years to decades. Right. I mean, this is, you know, this is the leading cause of death worldwide. And I don't think anyone expects that any one person, any one company, um, any one entity, any one country is going to be able to tackle this over the course of a few years. This is really um, a game we're playing for the long term. We're talking about decades. So I think in that context, inevitably, the technology will improve. Inevitably, it will become easier and simpler to do this. Game, and, and I, game of clones, Kieran. <laughs> I, don't, well, I don't know about that. But, um, <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, but, you know, I, you know, the very first, you know, instance of a therapy is going to be very expensive. And then, you know, a few decades later, um, you get to a point where it becomes very inexpensive to make it because the technology has so advanced and you have economies of scale in the sense that you're treating you know, potentially millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people if you're talking about vaccinations, right? So I think things will evolve. What, you know, is given to those initial patients with severe familial hypercholesterolemia will almost certainly not be at all the same thing that you're giving to, you know, general people in the population who are at risk of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. So, okay, there's one other area I want to, there's one other question I wanted to, before we, before we run out of time, and I know we're a little time limited on your end, so I want to get there. The whole subject is so fascinating to me because it's really taking – it's the idea of gene therapy, which we're just coming into clinical reality now in very specific instances, right? And mm-hmm. sort of envisioning it as something as broad as a vaccine, which is amazing. So the it will be – seconds before it comes up of like, oh, if we could do this for everybody, why don't we just do it for everybody when they're kids? Or what about before they're kids? What about prenatally? What about embryonic level? Even right away, uh, even for those FH patients, do you do this as children? Is it appropriate earlier? What I, I know these are things you think about a lot, Karen, and this is like sure. an area of interest to you. So I want to make sure we address that and that you get a chance to talk about your thoughts about that area. Sure. I think I think in this respect, my personal feelings on the matter, and I've never been shy about sharing them, <laughs> as you know, <laughs> sure. in the context of recent events over the last you know half year or so, um, as well as Verve's opinion on this matter as a company, is that the therapies will be directed at adults, adults who can give their own free consent to the procedure. There are no plans to treat children. There are certainly no plans to be treating before birth. This is purely about 
treating adults in the population who are at risk for cardiovascular disease. Fascinating. I mean, there's a little bit, those lyrics about the, the, the Nazi bomber, they said, once the rockets come up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Um, there's a little Werner von Braun in it because we, you develop the technology. It's hard to know how it's used. But on the other hand, okay. <laughs> it, is, it is amazing. And it is, it's the most common cause of death. So and for a subset of those people, very early death. So it's an incredible target, and I'm really excited to see where, where the company uh, lands. Do you want to – I know you can't say, but do you want to give me your best estimate of, like, what's the time horizon? What, what's in your paperwork we will say our first patient <laughs> will be? Well, I'll put it this way. What would you, you, you tell Google <laughs> Ventures? <laughs> Well, Verve is currently funded by Google Ventures as well as other members of the consortium that provided the Series A funding um, with sufficient funds to do three years of work. And so it is Verve's hope and expectation that at the end of those three years, we were ready to proceed to first in human studies. Wow. All right. Well, uh, the rest of the world, I can say, will be watching with great interest and you know, personal level, Kieran, thanks so much for making time for this. Uh, of course, in what has always to be a an pleasure. Incredibly busy week. Um, always likewise. a pleasure. For it. Uh, and I'm sure our audience is also equally grateful. Fascinating work, fascinating announcement, and the very best of luck with it. Thank you very much, Laura. And thank you all for being with us here today. Visit the website, beagolanda.com. Follow me on Twitter, all that good stuff. Take care. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.